0: the podcast of ideas what you're about to hear is a recording from the academy of ideas lockdown debate democracy versus technocracy how much should we listen to experts this took place on thursday the 21st of may in the chair is rob lines
1: welcome to this academy of ideas discussion democracy versus technocracy how much should we listen to experts I'm Rob Lyons, I'm the Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, and I'll be chairing tonight's discussion. I think this is one of the most important discussions uh, and questions that have come out of the uh, whole pandemic crisis. Um, The government's mantra throughout has been that they have been guided by the science. Scientific and medical advisors like Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance and Jenny Harris have become central to discussion as Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock and the work of modellers at Imperial College, led by Professor Neil Ferguson, has been hugely influential, not just in the UK, but around the world too. But we've also seen that there are real disagreements between the experts on everything from whether we should have locked down at all, with the contradictory example of Sweden, and experts there saying that that would have been the wrong approach to whether we should use face masks or not. So on the one hand, ministers do need the best possible information from those who work in a variety of fields on the nature of the virus, the way it might spread, the health impacts, the economic impacts, and more, and we'd be rightly critical of uh, politicians who just ignored um, the, the, the advice of experts. But what should be their role? To what extent does relying on experts and evidence diminish the role of politicians and democratic accountability? Are politicians just hiding behind? Uh, the experts to avoid responsibility for actually policy decisions that they wanted to make anyway. Um, now before I introduce our speakers, a small request. At the Academy over the years, we haven't decided to shut up shop, furlough our staff or wait it out until the pandemic subsides. We believe right now it is absolutely crucial that we keep talking and debating about how society should move forward. As a result, we're busier than ever. All our online debate events are free of charge, but we would be extremely grateful if you could show your support by making a donation, no matter how small or large, even just the price of a pint would be very gratefully received. So just visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate to help out if you'd like to. I thank you in advance. Right, now let me introduce our speakers. I'm delighted to have such an eminent lineup of experts to uh, kick things off. Um You might think it's ironic that we're starting our debate on how much we should listen to experts by listening to a panel of experts. Anyway, I'll I'll keep the instructions brief so that I I won't do them justice in terms of the expertise that they have. Uh, So first to speak will be Tamandra Harkness. Tamandra is a journalist, a writer and a broadcaster. She's a presenter for Radio 4's Future Proofing and How to Disagree. She's a comedian. She did a show at Edinburgh Festival last year called Take a Risk. She's also the author of Big Data, Does Size Matter? Tamandra is a great thinker on scientific questions and how they relate to society, how we understand evidence and the pros and cons of the way we use data. Next to speak will be Jill Rutter. She's Senior Research Fellow for Brexit at UK in a Changing Europe. She's Senior Fellow and former Programme Director at the Institute of Government and a former civil servant. And it's great to have Jill here as someone who has thought long and hard about the business of government and how decisions are made and how better decisions might be made. Um, Third to speak will be Professor Carol Sakura, he's Chief Medical Officer at Rutherford Health PLC, he's Founding Dean and Professor of Medicine at the University of Buckingham Medical School and and the former Director of the WHO Cancer Programme. I've been greatly appreciating Carol's commentary on the pandemic on Twitter, he's been providing a humane and optimistic approach to the evidence and how we're tackling the crisis, so I'm very interested in what he's got to say this evening. And finally, uh, is Dr. Claire Gerarda, Medical Director at the NHS Practitioner Health Programme. As well as being a GP, she's also the former chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners, excuse me. Claire was widely interviewed in March on the experience of having COVID-19 when very few people in the UK had had it. So she brings personal as well as professional experience to the discussion. So uh, welcome to all our speakers. So without any further ado, I'll hand over, I hope, to 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 Hartness. So I'll unmute you.
2: Thank you. Uh, I slightly feel after that introduction, I'm here as the token non-expert on the panel uh, because, like all writers and journalists, I'm a generalist and better at asking questions than providing answers. So I will I will try and do a bit of that, and then hopefully the other three panelists can uh, do a bit more answering of questions. Uh, I actually. It, did something just struck me as, as Rob was introducing that and, and talking about the experts on whom we are relying uh, to underpin the policy over coronavirus and it was Neil Ferguson who uh, got caught with his pants down slightly breaking the lockdown himself and the response to that I, I thought was actually interesting and might might be a way for us to get into the specifics of this discussion because I mean, my initial response when I heard it was to laugh and think, well, you know, how ironic, here's the, here's the man whose model has led to us all being being locked away and denying ourselves this kind of human contact. And then I realised that I was actually spontaneously feeling a surprising amount of anger that somebody, again, whose research had been used to underpin this policy, himself didn't think that he should follow it, or at least not to the letter. And and he seemed a bit affronted that he could give his reasoning why he didn't actually think it was a risky thing to do. And therefore, you know, he understood that he had to stand down, but but it was a bit like, well, you know, surely you could see this was a reasonable decision for me to make. Here's my reasoning for it. and And I thought at the time, well, one of two things has gone on here either he has himself thought this is the this is the outline ruling that the government is going to give everybody but we don't actually expect everybody to follow it and and there is some suggestion in fact in the models that did underlie the policy that the models predicted that not everybody would stick strictly to the rules uh, and in fact, people did mostly stick very strictly to the rules that they expected something like 75% adherence and got over 90% adherence, which I thought was itself interesting. Uh, or the other possibility is simply that he thought, well, obviously that's the rule for everybody else, but but not for me. But I think there was also something interesting in the slightly wider response to that. And I wonder whether that was the point at which some of the scientists and epidemiologists and modelers involved in the expert advice to government, started to realize the position that they'd been put in, that they weren't just giving expert advice on which politicians could make decisions for which the politicians would be accountable, that they, because they were fronting a lot of the uh, public announcements and the public policies, they were very much seen as being part of the deciding of the policy and therefore, if any of them were found not to be adhering to that policy, there was a degree of outrage because more recently, we've definitely seen a number of the scientists involved coming out and saying, listen, there is not the science. You're not following the science. There isn't some great lump of expertise here that you've just pressed the start button on. You were making political decisions. All we are doing is, inputting our expertise for you to base the decisions on and a number of scientists recently especially saying the science is uncertain. It's a new disease Especially when you're talking about epidemiology, you're talking about mathematical models. There are a lot of assumptions that go into the models uh, and none of these uh, expert inputs Actually tell you what policy you should follow. They tell you something about our current best guess at what the impact might be of these policies uh, and the state of the world and what we might predict the state of the world to be if you do X or Y. Uh, So I think it's quite revealing that scientists themselves have started to publicly say, do not hide behind us. Do not hide behind the expert input that we're giving you or the models you are making decisions for which you should be accountable which is absolutely as it should be. Uh, I, I remember something that Sharon Witherspoon once said at a meeting. Uh, it was so good, I wrote it down, and I indeed included it in my book on big data. She was at a, a meeting in the run-up to an election, and she talked about evidence-based policy. And she said, and there was a friss of horror around the room, because the room was full of fact-checkers and uh, statisticians and other experts, and she said, I don't believe in evidence-based policy. And there was a the small intake of breath. And she said, no, I believe in evidence informed policy because you cannot base a policy on evidence. You can use evidence to make better policy, but you are still making policy and the outcomes are, are different. And I, and I think actually I'd like to end by picking up on one of the things that Rob fact said in the introduction. The, the thing that worries me about the way experts are being used at the moment is not that, experts are being involved because clearly what we're talking about here is uh, a disease and the more expertise and the more knowledge we can get on that into the room the better because we you, we are gathering information as quickly as we can. We do need openness and clarity about the uncertainty and I think David Spiegelhardt has been doing an absolutely terrific job on this uh, pointing out where we could actually do better in gathering evidence and data and also in communicating it and being open about what we know and what we don't know and he's particularly pointed at the way that the, the complications and the subtleties and the difficulties of talking about risk have been sidestepped in favor of a very broad brush message of fear and that's now coming back to bite the government on the bum because it's very easy to turn on the taps of fear and very hard to turn them off again Whereas if you had started off saying, this is a new disease, the unknowns are large, we are deciding to go initially for a low-risk approach, but there is no zero-risk approach and we all need to be aware of that, then I think we'd be in a, in a lot better place now. So I think more openness about the uncertainties of science and expertise and more openness about the political process of decision-making that is invoking the science but clearly can't be determined by it would be a good thing because the lack of that openness does suggest that the role of expertise is not necessarily just to inform better decisions but is as a cover as a as an authority that's invoked by politicians so that they don't have to be democratically accountable for their decisions and they can say no 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 it's the science the science made us do it and it's so i'm really glad to see the scientists coming out and saying, no we don't we we told you what we knew and you've actually fudged that what's this two meter thing where did that come from uh so good for them that's what i'd like to say
1: okay great thank you very much um it's back to me and hopefully i can unmute jill right
3: uh okay thanks very much and thank you very much everybody for uh spending a Sunday thursday evening listening to to this debate i think uh this is right. This is, I think it's very good that the Academy of Ideas is putting this on. I think it's a very important subject. And actually, I'm rather boringly, uh, I'm not sure what this is my role, going to largely agree with Tamandra. Uh, I mean, this is uh, an issue on which you want ministers to be listening to experts, hopefully to a wide range of expertise, and particularly when they're looking at sort disease-disease of management, these are not ministers who are qualified to make, uh, to make their own judgments on things. They need to actually bring that expertise into the room. But they cannot possibly just abrogate all responsibility and just say, we're just a little puppets of the scientists and we did whatever Chris Witty, Patrick Valance, Neil Ferguson, or whatever said we should do. I think one of the first things to recognize on coronavirus is there isn't an established science. This is a new disease. It's a novel infectious disease. And the scientists themselves, and tomorrow's spring this, are learning on the job. They're becoming uh, more knowledgeable on actually how is this transmitted? uh, What settings are dangerous? What are not? What might be effective treatments? What are the potential rates of hospitalization? Are those people hospitalized? How many people are likely to go on to need? intensive care capacity and things like that. And ministers have to listen to that. But I think ministers did themselves a great disservice back in February and March when they were making decisions by not opening up the SAGE process to allow them to understand, you know, to what extent there were other people who were challenging some of the science coming from the particular experts to sat on SAGE. I think it was observed that ministers were refusing to disclose who was at what meeting using a sort of national security exemption. Uh, and Chris Whitney himself said to the Science and Technology Select Committee that he thought that was a stupid thing to do, that it worked when you were uh, uh, when you were doing a national security issue, like the strip poisonings, but it didn't work for this. So I think the other thing though, is I don't think we equip ministers very well in challenging the scientists. I was reading today a long piece that Lawrence Friedman, who was on the Chilcot Inquiry, uh, wrote, as uh, a sort of early assessment, early post-mortem of the first stages of the coronavirus response and he was saying there that uh, there were two bits that had come out of the look that they had at the way in which ministers were advised on the swine flu outbreak in 2009 and it said one the scientists had to be more, uh, had to give more feeling for the sort of range of disagreements between them when they advised ministers But the other thing was that Ministers had to be more prepared to challenge the assumptions behind uh, the conclusions they were being fed by the scientists. I think there's a bit of a danger because we have basically, with the exception of Trees Coffee, a ministerial team has no science background. It's quite difficult to challenge scientists. I know that when I worked at DEFRA, it was much harder, I found, to challenge the scientists in DEFRA than I'd ever found it when I was at the Treasury to challenge the economists at the Treasury. But I think the real thing going forward on coronavirus, why you can't just listen to the scientists, is ministers are increasingly in how to make really difficult and tough judgment calls, of which the science is only one element. That, I think, was true early on. And actually, I think ministers were not so much driven by the science to make some of the moves, but by public opinion. And public opinion that was acting ahead of ministers in wondering why the UK appeared to be taking... Quite a relaxed approach to coronavirus when they saw other European countries taking a much less relaxed approach and they weren't clearly very impressed when some of our scientists said that we thought their scientists were wrong so I think that was quite an interesting feature of the early stage but as this has come out of it they're going to face some really difficult trade-offs they're going to have to balance you know, economic issues some moral issues is it fair to keep older people locked up Do they want to keep left off or should they sort of let out for their own benefits or not, uh, they need to be aware of actually how their attempts to manage are going forward is uh, is actually going to interfere with, uh, with some of the rationality of their decisions. I thought it was very interesting that one of the areas where they got most grief last week was nothing to do with the science at all, but people questioning why it was okay for you to have a cleaner or a nanny to come to your house, but not to see your own parents in your house. And I think those are things where the scientists are going to offer any help at all. So I think ministers have ducked behind the scientists for too long. Uh, I think they would help themselves and everybody else by being much more transparent about what the science is and the limitations to the science, but also be very clear then on what interpretation they're putting in the science and what judgments they're making on the basis of the scientific information.
1: Thank you very much, Jill, that was really useful. Also makes the case for better broadband, slightly crackly there, but not your fault, and it was absolutely fine. Don't worry about that, uh, so. Okay, good. <laughs> um, uh, I want to bring in Carol now, hopefully I've, yes, I've unmuted him, I've had success, brilliant.
4: Carol, looking leafy, over to you. Thank you, very kind of you to invite me. So basically it's all as we've heard about risk management and you know as a doctor i've been doing it for as long as i've been born you're assessing patients and you're making a decision based on poor evidence poor quality evidence in many cases whether it's in the emergency room my specialism now is cancer i've been doing a consult i've been a consultant in the nhs for 40 years and it is all about risk assessment in cancer and we're exactly in the same place with this virus how risky is it and you know it's it's very difficult to remember but about eight weeks ago i was sitting with claire who's our next speaker uh talking about it long before that this has all happened thinking it would never happen like this surely it's going to blow away long before this but it hasn't and here we are People are frightened, they've been scared stiff by the propaganda, which has been so powerful. The Government has had very powerful propaganda, indeed. Protect the NHS, save lives, it's a, it's a great message. What it's done, of course, is keep cancer patients away from their GPs, and the whole pathway for cancer diagnosis has gone, the pathway for heart disease has gone, and for mental health has gone. And we've got to get it back, and that involves getting people to understand the risk especially as we're coming out of fear for politicians it's easy to make the decision to press the button and we've heard about ferguson's studies you know which have been wrong in the past and i think have been wrong now half a million people haven't died and are not going to die from covid but a lot of people will die from other things if we don't get back to normal and so The epidemiologists can assess the risk and tell politicians, but they have to make the decision. And it's completely correct that the the buck stands with the, the politicians and not with the advisors. The problem with medicine is that if you ask 100 people, you get different answers. In my specialty, a patient comes with breast cancer, and you ask 100 oncologists what is the best treatment, on the whole, we're pretty consistent. 90% may go one way, 10% will go a different way slightly. That's not too bad. But on this, especially with a softer elements such as epidemiology, they're all going at different levels. So the debate between Oxford and Imperial has really centered on all this and who's right? It's probably Oxford were right and Imperial were wrong by the look of things. I mean, one of the problems in this whole debate for politicians is not understanding the science and the vagaries of the science and what science can't tell you. The two phrases I've learned to hate over the last few weeks, we're led by the science. You're not led by the science, you're led by the politics of it. And the second one is the near normal. I can't stand it when people say the near normal. It makes no sense. We're, we're not going to a new normal at all. We're going to a very different world where people won't understand risks. Now, if you look at past pandemics, which is a good way to look at what's happening here, uh, we look at SARS, we look at MERS, they've just petered out. And when we look at the great plagues of medieval England, my old Cambridge College was founded because of the plague in the the 14th century. you know, it's amazing to see how it just petered out. No one really understands how they end. And I guess their own plagues end and pandemics end when society says they have. And people say, we'll accept the risk. Children die every day. Older people die even more frequently than children. And that's the way it is. There's a, a, a normal distribution of death. Every day, 1,750 people die in Britain and did last year and will this year. And so we've got to accept that there are risks and the pandemic has increased that risk for subgroups of people over the month of April and May. Thankfully, it's dying away now in terms of the numbers, the numbers of new patients, the numbers of hospital admissions, the numbers of deaths, they're all going down and that's great. And we've got to get back to the essential business of healthcare, which involves more than just treating COVID. So as we move forward, and I think we've got to understand risks and we've got to understand what we want as a society. You know, it, it pains me a little bit to think of the 18,000 tracers that are coming, that people that are going to go and check on you. How's this all gonna work? Are we really gonna download an app into your phone that lets the government know where you are 24 seven? I don't think many people are going to do that. What are the tracers going to do? If Someone with a clipboard pictures up in my house to tell me, I passed in the street uh, two days ago, someone that was positive for COVID. Do I really want to know? And do I, what am I going to do about it? What does it actually mean? So I think we're going to be out of this long before there's a vaccine, long before we need tracing. But we've got to do it. We've got to plan for the worst. The NHS model of disaster, which is out there, is that there'll be a surge of activity in September. We'll be back in lockdown. uh, We'll need hundreds of critical care beds again. The Nightingale hospitals will be open again. And we'll go into winter pressures that Claire, I'm sure, will tell us about, which happen every year in in a rationed healthcare system such as ours. So how do we get out of here? And the only way to get out of here is by getting the public and the politicians to understand risk. And not to create a blame game. And I think the one encouraging thing is the NHS has dealt so well with, with COVID, it can deal with all the things to come. We just have to look at it and how to do it. For politicians, you know, I felt sorry for them. I mean, how do they know? They're mainly arts graduates, as we know, or politics graduates, mainly from the old universities of Britain. And it's difficult to see how they can possibly assess the conflicting evidence they're getting from their experts. And of course, a lot of it is not science, as we've heard. What's the science behind face masks? There's none. What's the science behind social distancing? You've got the WHO saying it's one meter. Some civil servant has made up two meters because that would seem you know, wise to have a little bit of caution there. Five meters would be better, but impractical. So let's make it two meters. That's how it's decided and in the cabinet office. And it's not really based on science. It's based on what the public will take. I think democracy, which is what we're in, involves putting that decision down to the individual. You do what you're comfortable. Some of my friends of my age are petrified. They won't leave their house. Others are more brazen and are traveling on public transport like me. I've been on the tube this week. And you know, you see people are te- petrified. They don't know what to believe. So as we move forward, it's clear that what we have to do is get the politicians to sift the evidence. They have to make the decisions. But in the end, it has to be tolerated by the public. If we look at how other countries have done it, they've done it differently. The military police states in Latin America, in parts of Europe, have really had a forced lockdown, something that we've never done here. It's been a very British affair here, very gentle. Okay, the police have had a few roadblocks, but they're demo projects. They're not serious. They're not really bundling people into prison or anything like that. And sure, a few fines have gone out and the photos of the crowded beaches being dispersed by police. They're not sending people with truncheons and the machine guns in, which is what happens in other countries. So I think we've got to be very careful as we get out of this. And politicians can play the blame game when it's all over, when we've got all the data in. And that's where the scientists can really analyze the data, different countries, different timings, different seriousness of lockdown, and different ways of handling the downstream problem with health capacity, not just for COVID, but for all the other major diseases that can't wait, such as cancer, heart disease, mental health.
1: Thanks. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Carol. That was uh, another great contribution. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Right, last but not least is Claire, who's already unmuted, so that's great. So the floor is yours, Claire. Thank
5: you very much. And apologies if I repeat anything that Carol has said. I actually got... I lost your, I lost the ability to hear what you were saying halfway through so that's technology so but what I did hear was fantastic as with the other contributors and I think we're going to be absolutely largely in agreement here so it's just a certain nuance so if anybody listening to this or tuned in is going to expect a complete difference then I think you've probably come to the wrong place mainly because I think all the speakers here whether they come from an art or a science background are actually informed by evidence but making their own uh, views of it as Carol is drinking red wine so he's going to live forever. So I just want to put myself in perspective. Yes, I've had the worst of uh, politicians or of a politically led agenda. So I, as, as, as was intimated, I got my COVID infection whilst in New York. It was the tail end of, of February and I was staying in a very large hotel near Times Square and all the TVs, any of you that have ever been to a hotel in, in New York, all the TVs are always on. And half the TVs were showing basketball, and the other TV was showing back-to-back Trump on Fox News. And the basketball was just doing its, its thing. And Trump was constantly coming on and basically saying, we have no problem with coronavirus. We've got it under control. We have one case. Uh, it, it's absolutely fine. And, and needless to say, New York had no precautions, nothing. I mean, there was the occasional hand sanitizer. And I'd left the UK where we are just starting to have a real anxiety about what was going on and the day I left New York and New York declared a state of emergency so we had this so-called scientific view which was it was a state of emergency and even though I wasn't from America I understood a state of emergency meant something serious versus Trump even then saying oh with no problem and the history tells you I got uh, coronavirus, I got COVID-19, and I'm very fortunate that I am actually now uh, have my antibodies tested and immune, but there was the worst of politicians. Now, I spent the first five days of my illness in bed, listening in my delirium to -to back-to-back television. And at the time, what was coming out was actually what I think was best. It was when we look back on this we cannot blame politicians or scientists. I fundamentally believe they did the right thing at the right time, informed by the right information and tried to do it in our best interest. So whatever I say is caveated by they made the decision that they felt was in our best interest. But whilst I was in my delirium, I was hearing lots of uh, experts talking about that COVID-19 was predominantly the most at risk were the elderly, uh, people with comorbidity, the obese uh, and uh, And that was the group that was most, and men to a certain extent, uh, more than women, but there was this whole group and and I'm in my delirium and I thought I was delirious, I I started hearing the word herd immunity and it was becoming a sort of taken out of context and it was becoming to say well herd immunity is a dirty term it means we're killing off the elderly I thought well it doesn't actually it's what confers immunity in in the general population but nevertheless what was happening then as I was going through my my illness and watching the television gradually over those four days what was becoming a, a sensible debate about where the way forward was being taken over, uh, dare I say, by by the popular media and being uh, shown in on the telly and, and in the newspapers as as some sort of ulterior motive as to what the what was going on, and and we now see uh, where we are. And I think, to me, the moment, if you like, that. the the scientists and to a certain extent the politicians slightly lost the plot was when they closed the schools early because there was absolutely no evidence at all uh, that closing schools or the children were a vector of the disease. Not to repeat what the others have said but just to emphasise some of their points, we are now at the point where we're in a bit of a mess. We have policies put in place which however you look at it have no evidence. So if you ask me to wear a seatbelt to stop my face getting smashed up I wouldn't say well when can I stop wearing my seatbelt? if you ask me not to, to drink three bottles of, of wine and, and drive I wouldn't say well when would it be safe to drive three bottles of wine uh, uh, to drink three bottles but what we're at now is you wear a, a, a mask till it's safe well where, when is it going to be safe and and am sorry to use the pun but there is no face validity for wearing masks in community settings it, it, it becomes and in London where, where I live social distancing and, and, and uh, isolation has largely disappeared, the, the parks are packed. And, and We have the same thing with schools, so we've been told that children are at risk, they're a vector and they shouldn't be, they should have social distancing in schools. Well, I go to any park at this moment, even now, and maybe they should start be going to bed, you will see children playing football not socially distancing, quite rightly enjoying the, the open air. But the moment they go into a school, we suddenly uh, decide that they are a vector of disease. So there are a whole series of it's inconsistencies. And as many of the speakers have said, we now have created such fear, such utter fear, that some of my neighbours won't read the newspaper till it's a week old, so that whatever viruses has dead has died. Others, are people at my work, I do go into work every day, are coming as if in sleep suits, uh, completely from head to foot because they're terrified. And we have created a culture of fear because what we've actually got is neither the scientists nor the politicians leading the way. We've also got a fear about death. And I don't know whether anybody is now so preoccupied with death, it's entered my dreams and every day we have a a death score and what we're not actually having, which is what some people have suggested, is a score of what it would have been without COVID in all of the age groups and we're also not reminded every time we have the death score that 99.5% of the population who get COVID-19, get corona, will pull through just as I did. So going forward, I think the politicians have to lead. I think we have a, a democracy. And in the end, even though you may not agree with their decisions, they, they're the ones that we elect. And they're the ones we we, we, we 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 have to make our decision we have to empower them I know probably many of you don't like that word but we have to empower them with making the decisions on our behalf and not making the decisions on behalf of of the newspapers or or, or even of the the different factions in science and finally there has to be a choice in the end no politician in in a democracy can dictate who I meet when I meet why I meet how long I meet them for and where I meet. And if a a 79 year old with terminal cancer wishes to go outside and place themselves at risk, then that is their choice. We cannot have a situation where we are in a democracy. Now that we were out of the acute phase, making these sort of decisions. Of course we're going to see the virus again in October, November. All viruses will come back in the winter months. We're going to see a downturn in the summer months. I think it's during these summer months that we've got to take action to make sure we start giving, as many of the speakers have said, proper advice about risk because otherwise we've created the most frightened population that I've ever seen as a GP in my entire career. Thank you.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Claire. Right. All the panel are on mute now, so I'll uh, back to me. And um, so, there's loads on the table that, even though there's been quite a lot of agreement between the speakers, actually, there's lots of different nuances going on and lots of things that have been brought in. And the chat is going absolutely bonkers, so I can't keep up with that. Um, so, um, if you would like to speak, as I mentioned earlier, press that participants button at the bottom. And then there is a button there within that box called "Raise Hand," and uh, I'll I'll know then and I'll come to you as soon as I can. And the first person to do that is Rosemary Rosamond Cookston.
6: And um, yes, just to pick up on what um, Claire was saying right at the end, um, I'm I realise I'm quite blasé relatively about the risk from coronavirus. So I asked a question um, on Facebook yesterday of some people who are are really worried about their children going back to school um, and uh, relatives who are teachers going back to school. And nearly everyone who responded had lost somebody, either a, a relative or a family friend to coronavirus. I thought what was striking was that their fear was very much linked also to the reality of the death. And that, but we we do lose people to all sorts of you know horrible things um, throughout life. But I just think in terms of the amplified fear of the virus possibly the all the rearrangements around um, funerals and all of those kind of things we've also made the deaths a far worse experience as well for these people who have actually lost somebody um, and I think we've got to we've got to also bear those people in mind but I also just wanted to pick up generally I, I just want to understand why politicians, like or, or maybe not like but why they seem attracted to these worst case scenario type models like Neil Ferguson's because this is not his first model. I don't blame him but politicians seem to want to go to those kind of models for the answers.
1: Okay brilliant thanks very much uh, Rosie. Um, Justine, Brian.
6: Uh, can I just
5: ask a question to Jill? She said in her introduction that um, she thought one of the things ministers had to do, if I've heard this correctly, was challenge the science more often. Uh, and, uh, Minister, with no expertise in the subject you're meant to be making policy on, on what possible basis could you challenge the CMO or the CSO or SAGE or any of the other experts that come to you? And this isn't me making excuses for ministers making poor decisions and it's certainly not an excuse for them trying to blame everyone but themselves for making those decisions. But
7: just just as an ordinary person, it just made me think if I was in their position, on what basis could I challenge what they were telling me?
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, Noah, Noah Keat. Hello.
7: Hello there.
8: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for your speech. It's really, really insightful stuff. Um, Just a few points for me. Uh, The first point is about... Um, politics and politicians generally and whether they're almost defined by being an antithesis or in in opposition to expertise because politics is all about covering a broad range of issues both on a a national and a constituency level so I wonder to what extent the panellists think politics always sort sort of has to be separate from specific expertise on one issue. Um, I also just wanted to raise the point about almost the inevitable inquiry into the government's response into the uh, coronavirus pandemic that it's talked about and will take place uh, when the pattern Pandemic um, reduces in severity and sort of how um, we can ensure that you know, within that inquiry, ministers don't simply blame the science or scientific advice and all the things um, that the panelists have mentioned. Um, I also wonder to what extent the panelists think we should celebrate and embrace the role of ideology in politics and almost politicians being willing to have political courage and political ideals, and not simply saying that they rely on evidence for having evidence-based policy. Um, and finally, I just wanted to say, how can we look at science and again, celebrate science as something that isn't settled? It, it annoys me as well when politicians say, we follow the science. How can we celebrate um, science as something that's always being developed? It's based around you know adapting ideas, challenging other people. Uh, and how can we look at it as something that, yeah, isn't settled and that is always changing? Thank you.
1: Right, thanks very much, much, Noah. Um, right, Tony Gilland.
8: Thanks
9: very much, Rob. Um, Fantastic speeches, really interesting debate. I've got two related questions. Uh, One is about uh, um, the reference to the half million figure. I was very struck that uh, Carol uh, used it tonight. I was very struck when Boris Johnson used it last week. I'm very struck by the way it stuck, uh, when actually Ferguson's paper is very clear that that's not a realistic figure. You might ask why he did it. He probably knew what buttons he was pressing, maybe. But the paper is very, very clear that that's not a realistic figure. It also is very, very clear that it gives a very wide confidence interval uh, on all the scenarios, very wide confidence interval. And yet that's not been picked up, not been picked up by the scientific advisors, not picked up by the politicians, not picked up by the media, and indeed repeated by Carol, who's been fantastic on Twitter. I mean, Carol, absolutely, uh, uh, your tweets are (laughs) real. (laughs) Uh, relief to us all uh, so I'm not uh, looking to single you out but you yourself use that figure so it's stuck and I wonder whether there's some extent to which we've all become invested in this and maybe we're invested in this prior to actually happening and I work in the slightly uh, rarefied world of education uh, um, where it's very very striking at the moment uh, uh, um, how much people are invested in how much organizations are looking to interpret and come up with uh, ever more cautious ways of coming up with rules and regulations within the school and college environment. And so it seems like we've all become very invested in this. uh, And so it goes beyond uh, politicians and uh, the scientists. It's much bigger than that. I just wondered if anybody's uh, got any help or guidance they can provide or insight uh, on that perspective. Okay,
1: great. Um, Thanks very much, Tony um so uh, i'm going to take nico mcdonald paul Heard and jenny cunningham and then i'm going to go back to the panel because there's already almost a tsunami of points to kind of cope with so um i'll i'll, I'll give them some sort of fighting chance to at least tackle a reasonable number of them but obviously not all of them uh, so uh nico
10: over to you Um, Well, it's kind of a, it does relate to the point just made by uh, Tony Gilland uh, on statistics and how uh, the challenges that politicians have in being able to either understand or present statistics in a meaningful way. And early on in the the pandemic, every time the figures about the deaths from coronavirus were released, it was expressed that, you know, most people had some comorbidity and there was a sense about, um, you know, the age range of people who were dying. And as things have gone on, that's sort of been dropped, uh, and essentially, you know, the idea of early deaths, the idea of uh, deaths that might not, you know, which David Spiegelhalter, who who uh, I think Tamanda referred to, has talked about a lot, you know, where we you're trying to nuance, you know, have there been deaths in care homes where doctors have certified one patient as dying with COVID symptoms or from COVID, and then every other one has to be, uh, every other death has to be um uh recorded in that way. And uh, I know the um, Royal Statistical Society has for a long time tried to educate politicians about this. Is it is it willfulness on their part or pressure from the media? And this is perhaps a question to to, to Mandra particularly, but possibly also to Carol, which is leading them to just lose all nuance. And if I hear the word exponential again, Carol has his his hate words you know, nobody seems to understand what an exponential function is um, and it's just become a kind of adjective to describe something terrible. Uh, Or is it that politicians are, you know, it's not willful, they just actually need more educating about these things and we could have a more grown-up debate about epidemiology. Thank you. Okay,
1: thanks, Liko. So, uh, Paul Hearn. First of all, thank you to all of the,
11: uh, all the speakers. It's been a, a fascinating debate so far. Um, I'd first of all just like to make a very, very simple comment um, going back to the title of this, uh, of this event, Democracy versus Tech- Technocracy, and, and, and make a very very, um, a very, very, a point that I'm very passionate about and um, it is to remember that there is a senior advisor to this government whose aim in life is to move us more towards a technocratic society where we, um, where we hire data scientists, project managers, policy experts who have a one in 10,000 or higher level of skill or temperament. So I, I, I wouldn't underestimate the fact that that has maybe caused politicians to say we are relying upon the science. Um, because that feeds the bias of a senior advisor to the government but then I'd like to make a more uh, a more personal point and that's the one on risk management which has been mentioned by uh, by various of the, the speakers and go back to the very simple point which Jill Rutter mentioned which is that you know um, coronavirus COVID-19 is a novel disease where to some extent managing undefined risks or hazards which we don't know the effect of and it's quite clear that had a different approach been taken from the start by telling people um, that there was a degree of uncertainty but also by giving some, um, some more structure to the fact that there are things that we can manage. There is a risk of transmission by various means. We can manage those risks by simple measures, you know, hand washing, social distancing to a degree was mentioned at the start but I started a debate here about the simple wearing of face masks to minimize transmission from somebody who may be asymptomatic to others and that's a very very simple measure that people can relate to and it's astounding to me that there was a great deal of debate about whether that is um, beneficial or not Um, because whether it is generally beneficial or whether it's going to benefit everybody or whether it can stop all forms of transmission, it's very clear that it will reduce the risk to some extent. So simple measures were not taken um, to manage risks that I personally believe um, were very, very clear hazards from the start. Um, But the, the main point is that I do not think we should underestimate the political benefit that may have arisen had the experts and technocrats been proven to be right from this. It would have fed the uh, the agenda of a senior advisor in, uh, in Downing
1: Street. Right okay great thanks very much um, so I'll put you on mute uh, and Jenny Cunningham.
12: Well thank you to the panel it was a really balanced um, uh, perspective from all of you. I don't know who mentioned it. I think it might have been Jill. Made the point that quite early on, it wasn't just uh, ministers and scientific advisors, but it was actually the public, public opinion, that drove, um, you know, the, the government to take certain steps. So it wasn't just that pressure from scientific expertise; it was also public opinion. Um, and the, you know, that public opinion in the early stages wasn't actually dominated by fear so much as the fact that other countries were taking much, much more radical steps. And I think that was the sort of, if you like, the basis then for that so-called public opinion um, to, to then be very, very susceptible to the um, press hyping up um, this fear. But I wanted to look at the whole idea of public opinion because obviously um, we are so atomized at the moment that fear can grow very, very rapidly. And I suppose it's a question, not only of trying to bring to the table and to bring to the public, if you like, in as many ways as possible, um, uh, a more balanced view of risk and a more balanced view of the, the, the death rates in, in this case. But I, th- I think it's also a question of how does one influence political opinion? How does one begin to counteract that? And one thing could actually be, by example, And I was just thinking of the sort of courage of of head teachers who actually prepared to open their schools Um, might be one starting point, but there might be others. And I'd be interested in the panel or anybody else's view of how one influences that aside from obviously the the challenges to science, the challenges on risk.
1: Okay, great. Now, uh, I'm going to bring the panel back in. I'm going to start with Carol in a minute, but I am going to, abuse my position as chair to to sort of make a point or a question as well um so carol or nobody on the panel has to answer to to this but just just to take it out of the covid situation um and just look at other issues where we talk about the science so um a couple of weeks ago on the andrew mar show brian cox um was was asked about this and um and said oh well, there's no such thing as the science uh, and you know it's a developing evolving thing etc quite right um, in my opinion three years earlier when Nigel Lawson had been on the radio talking about climate change he said there's no disagreement uh, about the science what's this man on about basically so it seems like that we can talk about the science when it comes to climate change and um, but we can't we can't talk about the science in, in other spheres so at what point does it uh, does the science become established? Um, why why is it in certain topics sort of discussion sort of is sort of excluded? That's not not acceptable. Whereas in others um, we have a bit more of a free floating um, discussion and a disagreement is is allowed. Anyway, I don't necessarily think Carol needs to answer that. But since you were named Carol, I'd like to bring you back in specifically, and. Uh, so you can respond to things that are said to you, but don't try to respond to
4: everything, just one or two things. I think the science is clearly very important, but a lot of it's soft, and what do I know about epidemiology? I mean, the last thing I heard, the last time I heard R-naught mentioned, was 50 years ago when I was a medical student. And what does Cox know about the whole thing? What do any of us know? What does President Trump know about hydroxychloroquine, for example? Um, none of us have got a direct line to God, and so we don't have information coming at us. And that's the problem. So the, scientists, the science is limited, and we've heard a bit about face masks. It's very limited, the science behind it all. The social distancing science is very limited. And the fear, how come people are now petrified all around Britain? because of the propaganda, not just Britain, the whole of Europe, the whole of society. And I think, you know, if you look at the imprint of fear, Bista Village is a great place. It's the only place the train from Marylebone announces the destination four languages, Arabic included, uh, Chinese included. And, okay, you think, what's he going to go to now? The fact that a lot of visitors come from China, they come from Asia. And they were wearing masks because of the imprint of SARS from 2003. And they were wearing masks all the way through. For the last year or two, they've been wearing masks because that's their culture. Are we going to go into that sort of culture? It's not based on science. It's based on fear. And I think what we've got to go to to get out of fear is to get rid of that fear. It requires the politicians to have the courage to take us out of it now. And I think we are getting out of it. Whether there'll be a second wave or not, none of us really know. I think not, others think yes. Let's see, let's just monitor the situation and use science for that. So, Rob, I think we are going to get out of this. Uh, Most of us alive, thank goodness. Uh, It's a challenge. Some people will suffer like Claire did with uh, five days of delirium, and and others will come off very lightly and may not have any symptoms at all. 50% of patients that are infected don't have any symptoms, which is bizarre so i think as we move forward we have to encourage our politicians to make decisions based on what they can and carry them forward the inquiries will be interesting and that's where they can score brownie points on each other but for now we've just got to get out of here as fast as possible
1: okay brilliant thank you very much you mentioned claire so i'll bring in claire um your points anything you want to pick up on
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pick up all the points of the questions, which are superb questions, but... I just want to say where I come from in terms of, you see, I was brought up to believe in politicians, mm. uh, irrespective of whether I believe in their views. I have to trust in the democracy politicians, and I, I still do, except on Brexit, but I know we're not talking about Brexit. But with respect to science, and Carol's slightly disingenuous to himself, he does know about epidemiology because he studied it, as have I. But the only bit that I really grab hold of, and which I I find lacking is something called face validity and I was taught it so many years ago which if it doesn't look like it doesn't make sense then it's not that I disbelieve it but I then go to the books I read more I just look at it and I say well actually it doesn't make sense and to give you a a small example face uh, face masks and sorry for the pun have no face validity They, they just don't you get the mask wet people wear it under their nose they take it off to have a cigarette and not even health staff wear PPE properly. So, how on earth are we going to expect the great British public to wear these, these, these paper masks and, and do anything? So, it lacks faith validity. And as a public, we have such little faith in our own ability to read. To, to, to make a sense of what we read and we rely on the scientists to interpret it for us but if we taught and if we start to examine say so does it make sense so hand washing of course makes sense the one meter or the two meter of course makes sense but beyond that it doesn't because spit doesn't pass that way and actually as a GP I got to the point pre-COVID which is slightly where I disagree with Carol I think there is going to be a pre and a post we couldn't tolerate death every single death irrespective of was seen as a failure of life and somehow we'd have to have a significant event inquiry and the public never saw death and, and death was seen as a, as a terrible disaster and i think that's why to a certain extent we've got into the mess that we've got into at the moment because we've lost the ability as we've heard to understand that there are hundreds of deaths every day old people died the the brought forward or uh, the death rate we've seen is probably about two year brought forward so in other words we've seen two years of death in the last few weeks which of course is is, is not kind for the people that have died without uh, their relatives but in the end it wouldn't be good if it, 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 we had to to protect the NHS because we couldn't have so many more because we'd all the whole thing would fall apart but in the end that's what it actually means but you say that to the public and and it becomes a sort of well what do you mean are you being cruel should people die no what i'm actually saying is unlike spanish flu where people were dying 50 to 60 years ahead of when they should have died in covid we're probably seeing 18 months to two years which is even what neil ferguson said right at the start of all this so politicians i have to trust i live in a democracy scientists i have to be informed by but then i make my own decision as to what makes sense based on on my own experiences and, and so on
1: great thanks very much claire uh jill can i bring you in at this stage um
3: yeah just a just a couple of things um i think uh, uh one uh, person uh Anne, i can't remember the name intervened to ask um who, uh, how you challenge scientists, I think it goes a bit to to what Claire was talking about, about the, if you're a politician and you're being presented with some results by scientists, I think you have to interrogate what's the basis, how confident are you, why do you think that, what if you assumed something else, and I think it's really interesting here, I think the role of Chris Whitty is going to be quite interesting, somebody I was talking uh, to at the weekend was saying was it actually a problem in this that the chief medical officer is is himself quite a distinguished epidemiologist and therefore would have a view rather than the person who is helping the prime minister, along with the chief scientific advisor, helping the prime minister understand the sort of variety of views, come to their own view. I don't know whether, you know, sort of Chris Whitty pushed his view, but two things that I don't think have come out here at all. If there is a public inquiry, and we won't know uh, what the public inquiry will be asking, until probably a year's time when it might happen. But everybody's assumption here is that the public inquiry will be, why did we lock down so much, why did we not do it? At the moment, that's not the way the public inquiry will be stacking up at all. The entire questions for the public inquiry will be why did the UK miss the window it had to lock down earlier and why did it act so slowly and was that a failure of the scientific advice or was it a failure of political will and in particular Boris Johnson's own instincts to make him very reluctant to move as fast as other countries. And at the moment, that is what I think the public inquiry is much more likely to look at. The other thing that no one has mentioned, and I think it's very naive to think wasn't a huge driver of policy on this, was not the concern about you know, half a million deaths or whatever but the prediction that if they didn't act quickly, they would see something like the scenes in Italian hospitals in the British NHS. And if you are a conservative minister who knows that the one issue in which Labour have a consistent lead on you and the issue on which you are least trusted is the NHS, the one thing you really, really want to avoid is any sense that because of your decisions, Uh, you have let the NHS be overwhelmed. And I think it's very telling. I think I'm about the only person on the planet that actually prefers the government's messaging now of stay alert, control the virus. I mean, that's a bit of a weird thing to ask people to do. But I really hated the message of stay at home, save the NHS, protect the NHS, because the NHS is there to protect me. I am not there to protect the NHS. And I thought that was a stupid message to send to the public.
1: Brilliant. (laughs) I guess I'm broadly with you on that one, I have to say. Right. um, uh, Tamandra.
2: Okay. um, I'm going to just pick up on a couple because there are lots of really great points there, obviously. Um, The first one is should we? Celebrate. Noah made several good points and I just want to pick up the one where he said well Should we actually celebrate ideology or political ideals or political principles more than we do and I, I think that that is absolutely crucial I think we really should and I think in a sense one of the problems of technocracy is that technocracy itself the idea of although as we've seen not necessarily the reality of but the idea of rule by experts that you you don't have any dispute about what good policies would be except that they are effective and efficient and therefore you get the experts in to create the most efficient and effective policies but you never at any point debate what constitutes I mean you know, it's the classic Aristotelian thing of what constitutes the good life and that's a kind of assumed uh, I don't know, I mean, it's whatever, everybody's healthy, nobody smokes, everybody bicycles to work, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, there's like this, the, the consensus of what a good life is, is never, is never debated, but you then you bring in experts to implement it in the most efficient and effective way possible. And, and that efficiency in itself is seen as a political principle, is like, well, obviously, why wouldn't you want to do that? Uh, which simultaneously masks the lack of any real principles about well what does constitute a good life what 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 kind of vision of the future do politicians have Uh, but then in itself it becomes a political principle it's just simply efficiency and doing things better uh, becomes a, a political principle in itself and and I think that is really that is really the root of the problem I don't think any one of us would object to involving experts in implementing political policies. I think what, what we're all rather uneasy with is the idea that the, the political principles on which the policies are based somehow never actually got brought into the open or discussed. Um, but the other thing I wanted to pick up on was, I mean, Nico raised a very good question about picking up on the idea of why, why do politicians on the one hand not challenge Experts assumptions, but also why do they fall for these incredibly broad brush? generalized public messages instead of Really getting stuck into the the nuance and the complexity of discussion about risk And is this because we need to teach them all statistics? Which you know, obviously we need to teach more statistics as a as another fellow of the royal statistical society I'm obliged to say that but um, but clearly that's not enough because the context in which these discussions are being had and these decisions are being made is of a very risk averse society. And I think if the politicians had, I mean, you know, I, I have criticized the politicians for going in with this message based on fear, instead of saying, look, there's no zero risk situation, but we have decided we want to reduce the risk by having this policy it will avoid the NHS getting overwhelmed, we think these are the good policies, we might revise them as the science emerges but we are aiming to reduce risk by doing this. Instead of doing that they went all in on ah, everybody's gonna die, stay home, stay home. Uh, but I think even if they had, even if they had shown a bit more political courage and said listen there's no zero risk option here, it's a new disease, it clearly kills uh, people, especially old people and people with these conditions, and some of them are going to die. And, you know, and Boris did try to hint at that when he said we will lose people before their time. But he didn't really go through and say that is just the way it is. And we have these decisions to make and we're going to try and reduce the risk that it won't go away. But even if they had, if they'd have the courage to do that, I don't think people would have been receptive to it because we live in a society where safety is seen as a moral value and the idea that risk is not only an acceptable part of life but actually can be a good thing because it's only by taking risks that you innovate you know without people taking risks in the past we would not have vaccines vaccines wouldn't exist airplanes wouldn't exist which are now the safest way to travel mm-hmm. so it, i think the moving us from where we are to a society where politicians and everybody else can go yes let's have a really grown-up conversation about what level of risk we're prepared to support what the trade-offs are is is a really enormous task because i I think we're so mired in seeing safety as an end in itself that we have to look around for some bigger principles to put against that
1: right brilliant okay now there is a stack like a packet of pringles of people who want to speak So if you want to get in, uh, please uh, press that raise hand button now um, because now is the moment and people are doing that, which is great. Um, But I would ask everybody now who's got the hand up, keep it short, stick to one point and make it brief so I can get as many people in as possible. So next up is JJ, the floor is yours.
13: Um, Very quickly, I mean, I think the basic, can you hear me? Yes, yes. So um, I think that one thing I've really kind of been struck by the recent events is that we we see quite clearly that both culturally and politically, nobody seems to be able to tolerate the possibility that the future is very hard to predict. We're no longer certain that political leadership, which is to say having institutions that should be able to make very high level choices, uh, has to operate with the capacity to face the unknown. And that there are certain moments in which we can't know for sure what to do uh, key issue here. We should accept, I mean, I think what's really no, uh, amazing about what we've just seen play out is essentially that, inst- that we've witnessed institutional paralysis produced by the shock of being outrun by events. I mean, th- that's really kind of telling about uh, the way in which government has operated. It's And what we are dealing with now, it seems, is a kind of institutional shock. So having tried to face the unknown, but not being used to having to deal with these kinds of events these very kind of high level unknown radical uncertain events government has essentially gone into shock and shut down and is now so risk averse because of course as Timandra was saying uh very uh, precisely uh, we're not used to the nature of, to having risk in our environments at every level um we're now watching a, a, an institutional paralysis which is uh, essentially traumatized, right? It's a response which is a trauma response of being completely incapable of dealing with uh, uh, making judgments. I think the point is really we should, we should note two things. I mean, science is very good at uh, finding things out over a period of time through testing and learning, but it's not very good at dealing with contingency. It's not very good at dealing, scientists are not very good at dealing with real time contingency in the way that military strategists are. Uh, And I think that's been the real problem with uh, always relying on the idea of expertise, is that what you actually need is expertise that knows how to adapt. Uh, And one last point is, uh, and scientists are not always necessarily that good at uh, at adapting in real time. That's to say, not being able to go back and testing hypotheses a second time or a third time. The last point is um, that we should accept that errors of judgments are going to be made in real time. Uh, and so the whole kind of uh, uh, mission to go back and haul everyone over the coals uh, in public inquiries that are going on forever uh, as to whether they could have made better judgments at the time is, is total futility. What we really should be saying and uh, pointing out, and this is uh, the, the cor- correlate of risk and being able to take risk, is that we learn. Right? People seem to have forgotten about this concept called the learning curve, which is okay. that over, over time we are going to work out a better way of dealing with this. The problem is, right now, we are so paralysed with this kind of fear of taking action that the process of learning how to deal with the situation is going to take very much longer and is going to be far less effective than if we were able to deal with it much more robustly and quickly and actively.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Right, people are going to have to start being shorter now. Right, I'm going back to Rick. Hopefully, we're live. Hi,
14: a couple of points I wanted to make was... I think one of the things from public perception is that no one expert has a monopoly on good ideas. Um, as an engineer, there's plenty of times I'm told by an expert that something can't be done only to find a way to make it work. The other thing is it's who we're being expected to listen to. When you look at sort of Neil Ferguson's modeling, he's not got the greatest track record on um, actually getting it right. Um, And so it's hardly surprising that the masses then don't really want to accept what he's saying, especially when he goes and breaks his own rules when it suits. Um, That being said, I don't think we should ignore experts either. I just think we need to sort of take a broad range and then ask questions, as other people have said. Uh, I think Jill made the point, you know, what has led you to this? If we change the criteria slightly, what does that lead us to? To try and make sure that what advice is being given is not following a sort of motivation from one perspective or a political perspective or an ideology um, and is actually the right advice at the time.
1: Okay thanks very much uh, Kerry Dingle.
15: Um, Just a few quick points firstly just I thought all the speakers were really fantastic so um, thank you all for that. Quick things um, how do, following on from the last, from JJ, uh, the last speaker, in fact, how do some scientists become the spokespeople? Why is it that it is your nails that get um, all the, get the spotlight? Is it about political allegiance? How does that happen? I'm sure maybe Claire and other people can help us with that and not other people. You know, why are people like, I can't pronounce his name, Nut Wachowski, shut down, for example, the guy who said, you know, we could start again without a lockdown and um, might be better off. And given that we've also, on that, given that we've had the sacralization of the NHS and the disaster we've seen, I think Jill um, is absolutely right on this, the carnage in care homes, the lack of testing or the failure of testing, Isn't it a situation where we do have to call politicians to account and I'm not for public inquiries on this and do we, in that context, call scientists to account who've provided and helped those errors along? And lastly, is there enough scientists like Carol and others who are prepared to come out now and argue against the lockdown and challenge a culture of fear. Surely they could play a role in helping us out of this.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, that was that first point you made about who who decides who becomes becomes the anointed one in terms of the experts. I think is a very interesting uh, issue in all of this. Right, I've got Ella Carlton and Alistair next. So, uh, uh, Ella, the floor is yours.
0: Thanks, thanks, Rob. Um, it was just. Thinking about the fact that, Rob, the point that you made about the uh, climate change and the science and that being a sort of given, whereas there's questions around the science now. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. I've had endless debates about smoking and the science. And, you know, and the the question always is choice. And I think part of the problem with the current situation we have is that asking for choice (laughs) even though we still live in a democracy which is based on the idea of having a choice is sort of tantamount to saying that you just want people to die and um, choosing which expert you listen to is impossible not least because they're all getting banned anyone who speaks out against lockdown or brings up a different uh, question of the how to interpret the statistics as Carol will know gets their uh, videos taken off YouTube and Get silent, So we are at, we're in this quite remarkable situation in which we've sorry, in which we. It's too hot. So I've got all the windows open. Sorry, in which we've um, basically allowed ourselves to to have our choices completely limited, um, and yet we still live in a democracy. We we don't pick which experts are um, talking to involved in Sage. We don't, at the moment, pick who's uh, making the decisions, even though we've got this strange situation of a government that's been elected by a large majority everything seems uh, to have been decided for us and yet our and our choices are being diminished and diminished so it's sort of what carrie just asked which is um, at what point are doctors and others going to start making the argument that carol made which is to say um i might choose to risk catching this virus and i might die because of that choice for example but shouldn't that be my choice
1: okay brilliant uh thank you very much Ella right uh Carlton and I really would like people to speed up so that I can get there's quite a lot of people still to get in I'd like to get as many of them as possible so um
16: very very quick um it's basically I'm interested in what Claire had to say about herd immunity and how it had become a a dirty word because one of the things I've kind of noticed how quickly herd immunity morphed into immunity from the herd, in the sense that kind of lockdown, there's kind of predisposition within certain sections of society towards lockdown. So it's not a case of kind of following the science as such, but there is a kind of, I think it was Tony mentioned this, there's a kind of predisposition to the kind of, a kind of a a fear of, of the other, a fear of other people, uh, and the kind of the kind of lockdown to an extent, possibly the only game in it, the only game in town in the sense, kind of the real issue was that neither the elites or basically ordinary people in society really trusted each other to kind of deal with this in, in a rational sense. So there's a kind of nobody's really following the science in that sense, but there kind of there's a predis- predisposition to kind of not or just mistrusting how we deal with this issue
17: great thanks very much Uh, Alistair um, yeah, my my question is, uh, I suppose, following on from Carrie and Ella, because the politicians have taken a little bit of a beating tonight, and I, I think rightly so in terms of their absence of leadership. But I think having a, uh, so much expertise on the panel, I, I, I do want to ask about the, the role of the scientists and the experts in in terms of how their voice is brought to bear in this whole thing. Because if you, if we go back to the, the point where Dominic Cummings was found to have attended the SAGE meeting, then there was a lot of stuff that came out at that point about uh, from the scientists within SAGE and, and uh, people that they were, uh, you know, uh, in league with, as it were, um, that politicians shouldn't be involved in these sorts of decisions. And science, science and expertise has been politicised quite a lot of, over the, the recent years. I mean, you only need to think of climate science, um, you, you think of the role of behavior scientists within uh, number 10, which came out at the start of the crisis. So I suppose my my question is, if scientists are politicizing uh, what they do, then how can we get to a point where we take what scientists and experts are saying as, as advice, as neutral advice, as, as, a, as a contribution to the debate rather than a politicized uh, desire to exert their their... their uh, views.
1: Great, thanks very much Alistair. Uh, John McVarish? Um, maybe you need to unmute this, yes, there we go. Oh. Uh,
7: yes, I think the other dimension here, so democracy and technocracy don't capture everything of what's going on here and the other side of it is emotions. And I just wondered what people think about um, the role of the emotions and a kind of emotional connection between government and the public, which to me seems really important. And the appeal to a lot of us of, um, or of other people, maybe not me, but of a kind of communal experience which has been, I think, even though we're all locked down, I think the appeal of this to people in in large part has been this kind of communal experience of doing our bit um, and doing something good while doing nothing. Um, which I think has been very very appealing to a lot of people and it reminds me in lots of ways of, Diana, of the Diana moment which was 20 years ago we've had 20 years of this kind of stuff um, so I just wondered what people think about the relationship between um, the experts and so you know supposedly science technocracy and democracy and a kind of public which is more mobilized more readily through emotions.
1: Great thank you very much indeed uh, so many good points coming out here. Um, Graham Cartmell.
18: Okay, hello, thanks very much. First of all, great all these contributions, my first appearance here, wonderful. I'd like to address, not me wonderful, you wonderful, Uh, I'd like to address the key point which is the elephant in the room, which is the politicians. And I've heard all sorts (laughs) of things. Now don't get me wrong, I am not saying we don't need politicians, we do. We disagree about an awful lot of things and they're there to make the judgment that here we have with the nhs probably the most revered public institution in the world and yet we persist in thinking the only way is to leave it within the stranglehold of basically the two political parties and my argument is it's not the issues we're faced are no longer issues it's whether it left or right what happens is they end up are well, trying to score points off one another, what we don't get is serious, boring, efficient government. And I'm sorry, I could go on, but I obviously don't wanna take up your time, just to say there is a way that as we devolve power to Scotland, we, can, we think this is the Academy of Ideas, I'd encourage you to think that there are ways to devolve purely the NHS into another elected assembly, so the minister of health who incidentally if you take the last 30 years last even less time than football managers and not even the ones in the relegation zone the minister of health would be appointed within this assembly thank you very much
1: right okay thanks uh, graham um right josephine
19: um i was just um coming back on this point about um somebody said that um head teachers are being very brave at the moment <coughs> Um, And um, it kind of fits into the thing that Jan was saying about um, people's emotions. Um, Because I think when the um, virus first took off, people were like, what can we do? Um, So many people signed up for the NHS um, volunteer scheme. And everyone went, no, what you can do is you can stay at home. That's your contribution to society. Head teachers are now trying to open schools. Unions are saying, telling people not to engage. So head teachers and unions can't uh, head teachers and teachers can't talk. Unions think they're helping teachers, but they're seeing it through a very technocratic um, process, so like we've got our five tests don't talk until the five tests are passed. so n- there's no space for human relationships, and the technocracy is uh, uh, was already there, and it's, um, it's the structure through which everything is seen. So I've heard people who've said, look, I'll come into your school, I'll clean, I'll help, I'll do this, I'll do that. But no, they can't because they haven't got a DBS check. So um, people who, you know, I don't think it's so much that the public, uh, we're, we're not interested in, and, you know, we're too scared and all of that kind of thing. I think there is a sense um, that, you know, we're doing our bit, we're staying at home, we're following the rules, we're ticking the risk assessment boxes, we're doing everything we can.
1: Great thanks very much. Now uh, I'm going to nip out of the the Pringle stack for a moment um, because I know Claire Gerardo wanted to leave um, at half eight sharp so I just wanted to uh, bring Claire in, let her have a sort of final say and then I'll bring the, the panel back in at, in about five or ten minutes after that if that's okay. So Claire do you want to sort of say well, your final? I
18: mean,
5: yeah first of all apologies for having left. my. This is, you know, people are saying this is the new normal. The new normal is having crashing IT and and all sorts of things. But what amazing contributions. And if only that we captured these amazing contributions, these amazing contributions were in SAGE, we might not be in the situation that we're in now. There are so many comments. And I think I just want to make the the last comment with, with Josephine because about head teachers opening schools. Because the paradox is she's absolutely right. We went from being heroic was staying in and now being heroic is going out and how we've moved over the seven weeks to this sort of strange uh, situation where we, we, we've we sort of said you know everybody needs to stay in to save the NHS and to save our lives but now to save our children the schools have to open and head teachers have to open and they're heroic for doing this And and so many of the contributions here have been about our acknowledgement of risk and uncertainty. And I have rather flippantly, before my internet crashed, I can't see it now, said, well, GPs should have been in SAGE, and maybe GPs should have been in SAGE, because as a GP, every 10 minutes, we have to make an assessment based on risk, of which we may well be wrong. And we are wrong many of the times, but that's what we have to do. But you know, I'm not criticizing the, the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer. I think they've done what they've done for the best of reasons. So, thank you very much for letting me take part in this, and it's been a very informative for me. And I really wish now we we start to and listen to the scientists, but also take our own perspective of what's going on. We see people outside. We know that uh, the virus the viruses tend to, to to become less in the summer months, mainly because we're outside and Hopefully, we will be going back to a situation that uh, I thought GPs were on stage. No, they weren't, where we can go back to actually having some normality and realising that it's not just about health. It's also about e- economics and, and and all the issues that, that go with that. So thank you very, very much.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed for, uh, for taking part and in your invaluable contributions as well. Um, so on to Claire Fox.
20: Some fantastic contributions. I, I, I just don't one point I wanted to make was that I don't think that it's just a culture of fear that's led to this because one of the most convincing things at the beginning particularly of this escalation of the virus was that people wanted to protect other people so when they were told that they could be a spreader or that they could pass it on to the elderly or the vulnerable or just other people in society they were they had no way of making that decision themselves they had to listen to some scientific expertise you know they weren't just cowering at home they were trying to act in a way that was altruistic and sociable and social and you couldn't make that call yourself you know we aren't epidemiologists so if they said that we were going to be a risk to others in that instance i think that motivated people a great deal at the beginning and it's it might have all changed or i think it's important not to just see it as fear but that's really what the problem is it seems to me is to, to people have asked you know how do you know which experts to believe i who am a great critic of technocracy and scientism find myself saying oh but i find an epidemiologist who agrees with me that uh, the lockdown is too much and so we all end up swapping you know my experts better than your expert. it is whether we like it or not, that's become, everybody's got their favourites. And usually my favourites are banned by YouTube, but it doesn't really matter. The point being that we've actually all gone along with this in some ways, and that does undermine our autonomy. But is there not another group of experts that we have ignored? And that was one of the things I particularly wanted to ask Jill Rutter on on this, because we've also got a narrow view of experts. If you look at the whole issue in relation to care homes, The people that I've had the most intelligent conversations with about care homes and what should have been done in care homes were people who work in care homes because they did have an understanding of what was going on in care homes. But somehow we're all meant to listen to NHS workers when they say they need PPE or so on and so forth. You know, they were kind of taken seriously, but the care home workers weren't. Now we're being told that we have to listen to teachers and not open the schools up. We don't, in other words, we don't really know who is, has the authority. So it's, it does make it tricky. And that's why I think we do resort to people with authority, usually with medical authority, because it's a medical public health crisis. And in some ways, um, we've, we've lost our ability to have what I think is more important, which is a public conversation where everybody's involved in the mix and that the government listens to them all. Instead, they just listen to a kind of who's got the loudest clamour and the most uh, credentials it's in doing, and that's very dangerous.
1: Great, okay. I am going to now annoy a whole bunch of people because we've run out of time. We haven't even brought the panel back in yet. So I'm going to take uh, Andrea Seaman and then I'm afraid that's got to be it. So um, Andrea, uh, the floor is yours.
21: Well, it seems to me that uh, we have only talked about one type of expert in this whole discussion and only tangentially touched on the other type of expert, which is actually a more important one. Because um, if you think, for example, um, what seems to be the Platonic view that experts should rule society, um, Plato was actually pretty nuanced there. So if you ask Plato whether we should give epidemiologists the rule over our society in the situation of coronavirus, Plato would say no. He would say epidemiologists have no skill in ruling, they should not uh, call the shots here, it is the politicians who should be skilled in ruling. Now, Plato was wrong because he didn't think everyone could be a politician, and indeed that is the modern point of democracy, that everyone can be a politician, but politicians especially who are on the front lines of uh, their particular subject of expertise, which is what Tamandra Harkness touched upon, which is uh, to uh, find out how to lead the good life and direct society in that goal, and uh, to find out what is the moral and good thing to do, have signally failed in their responsibilities in this crisis. They have pretended that scientific advice is equal to what is uh, good They have said that the good thing to do, the moral thing to do, the just thing to do, is to follow the scientific advice. But science can actually not tell you what you should do on the moral level. And what politicians should have done is to have a debate about what actually, independently of the science, is the right thing to do. Because that is not an empirical question, but a moral and uh, non-empirical question. And in my opinion, what we should have done is uh, made self-isolation entirely voluntary in the line in, uh, along the lines of what Lord Sumption has said, because that is a fundamental freedom that should not be taken away from anybody. Instead, what they've done is taken the moral responsibility, not only from themselves, politicians have not only abdicated moral responsibility as politicians. They've also taken the moral responsibility away from citizens to take the risk upon themselves to go out into the public and get themselves infected. And that is uh, probably the greatest crisis and the the biggest problem in this whole situation.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Sorry, everybody, I really wanted to get you all in, but I also really need to get the panel back in now. So um, I'll start with Jill, if that's okay, because was something specifically directed to you. So, uh, Jill, your final thoughts?
3: Uh, I'm gonna to totally agree with Claire. I think that it's very interesting that in all of this, this is not just an epi- Managing this crisis is not just an epidemiological issue and actually sort of finding out what's going on the front line. You know, Lots of the problems have been delivery problems in you know, getting kit in the right place, managing capacity. The whole stuff with care homes. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's very interesting and one of the things that I think is coming out of this is a bit of a rebalancing of public attitudes towards the social care sector and I think that is good. I think the government's going completely their own way about how they want to solve it but I think it's good that we've actually focused on that sort of basically forgotten sector uh, as a result of this. I just wanted to answer a question about who gets to sit on which group. I don't actually know. They're chaired by the chief scientific advisor, so I imagine they're people that he invites to come in there. But that's one reason why I think this issue of publishing the membership is very important, because that enables people to see who's on there. And actually I don't think people are particularly doing things for their political reasons, but you you always think your model is the better one than their model, etc, etc, and that you should be taken seriously. So I think it's quite important that we know who's on there. And that's why I think it's quite important they publish as well the inputs into SAGE and the advice from it just so it can be scrutinized properly and other people can say, but actually you've just stacked it up with a whole bunch of people who think this way. And there's a whole bunch of other people who think something else that you're ignoring. But the one thing I would say is notwithstanding what everybody on this uh, debate has said, what the government's doing is actually very popular the government is uh, you know, there's a lot of support for what the government's done and um uh, and it's very interesting i mean amazingly low levels of frustration with the lockdown in the general population
1: okay yes well that is a whole different issue um thank you very much Jill for those i'll, I'll bring in carol now if i may
4: uh, your final thoughts carol so it's been a fascinating hour or two and i think it does show that the questionable philosophy of, of politics in a de- democratic society that we have here you know it's what i didn't understand is there is the behavior insight team in number 10 that's now privatized and it's basically a PsychOps organization and they're responsible for the slogans about brexit the slogans about protect the nhs to make you feel guilty if you stepped out of line and i think It's called the nudge unit in the the language of the politicians and it has been very powerful and people don't understand that they're being manipulated all the time by politicians. It's interesting, my granddaughter lives in Peru, which is a military police state, basically. And they're totally different lockdown facilities, the way in which it was done in a military operation. You weren't allowed out at all for six weeks. this is totally different here. We've tried to persuade people. It's a balance and we have to go with that balance and different cultures are interpreted in different ways. But moving out of here, uh, I think the social responsibility for what you do is up to you. And I think that's what we've got to get to. I don't want to see a tracer come to my door with a clipboard with a policeman standing behind them. That wouldn't seem the good way forward. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I'm sure everybody listening tonight does the same. Uh, we live in a democracy, we've got to listen to the, what we're being told, but we t- make our own decisions and most of us are going to act completely responsibly. And whatever you do, there are going to be people having barbecues at the weekend and the nice weather, going to the beach, dancing, playing loud music, getting drunk and so on. It's inevitable. But I think the majority of our society will do what they feel is right. And that's probably the way forward.
1: Okay, okay. brilliant.
4: Brilliant. Thank you, Carol.
1: Uh, uh, last but not least, Tamandra.
2: Hi, I'm Close uh, the show. Okay. Well, you know, I know this is not a time to actually introduce some disagreement, but I do actually think that a contagious disease is a point where you do have to have some society-wide decisions uh, that people abide by and I actually agree with Claire Fox that people have been very altruistic about this and as well as falling victim to the message of fear have actually been motivated by protecting more vulnerable people and you know I mean the whole protect the NHS message was essentially about look after the health service so that it's there for the, for the people that need it. it not fundamentally a message of fear rather sacralized but but not of fear so i I actually think it would have been enough and interestingly apparently some of the sociologists inside the expert committee argued this at the time that it would have been enough to say to people please uh adhere to these guidelines in order to reduce the infection rate in order to protect the people who are at risk and and they should have gone much more that way in my view instead of tapping into to fear and risk aversion. I'd, I'd like to really briefly touch on the question about emotions because that that is a whole other debate but would just like to say that the kind of shift in politics towards politicians using emotions to connect with the population on a very individualistic or atomized on a one-to-one level happens at roughly the same time and you know very famously Tony Blair the Diana speech 1997, but but it was also at the same sort of time as the idea of a risk society became very influential, and also in new labour circles, Anthony Giddens, influential sociologist, talked about how, in fact, attitudes to risk and the unpredictable and therefore frightening nature of threats in the future would come to be a dominating framework for society, and I think we are we are seeing the fruits of that now, and in a sense, They're two sides of the same coin. You've got risk society, which pretends to be this very scientific, quantitative way of seeing the world, but in fact is all about a terror of an unquantifiable future threat. And then you have this emotional connection, which is all about, let us empathize on the basis of things like fear and pity, rather than on the basis that we're all reasoning human beings who have altruism and are capable of of a public discussion where we say, well, what what kind of level of risk are we prepared to tolerate collectively? And therefore, what kind of personal inconvenience and sacrifice are we prepared to make to protect others who are more vulnerable than us? And and you, you can't just say everything has to be down to an individual decision because this is something that puts a minority of people at great risk and the majority of people at very little risk at all so we're essentially talking about protecting a small minority of people and that, that does involve a, a social debate and some kind of social discussion about how do we mitigate risks for that vulnerable population and in principle that is exactly what politics and democracy should be about that kind of society-wide negotiation uh, and that is absolutely that. That level of public discussion is exactly what we're missing. Apart from tonight, thank you very much, Rob, for tonight's opportunity to do
0: it.
1: <laughs> thank you. Or I'm going to unmute all of you. Please give them a round of applause. <laughs> what a great panel and what a great debate. And well done to you, Rob, as well. Well done. Final thoughts. Um, please, uh, if you have, if you can, please donate. I'll put the link back again in the chat. Uh, academyofideas.org.uk forward slash today so we can keep doing these kinds of discussions the next one of which will be on monday the 1st of june which is completely different again which will be about uh, geopolitics uh, in after covid19 and all the changes that are going on within that as well we've got lots of other events as well go to the events page on the academy of ideas website there's loads of these discussions going on all the time. Uh, thank you again for all your contributions. It has been a very, very good debate. I'm going to uh, call it quits there, but I'll leave the, the, the Zoom meeting open so you can carry on chatting more informally. Uh, thank you very much. And goodbye. If
0: you'd like to attend future salons, forums or debates, head to academyofideas.org.uk and check out our upcoming events. And if you enjoyed that discussion, how about giving us a donation? All our online events during lockdown are free, so we're counting on your generosity to keep us going. Thanks again, and stay tuned for more from the Academy of Ideas.